For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And Father, as always, we come to you now and ask that you would help us to take these promises to heart, what it means to have been adopted by you. And Lord, for many, the, the image of parents, the image of a father brings different feelings and attachments than maybe comfort or strength. It may bring pain. Lord, we come this morning knowing that you are no earthly father. You are no man. You are no human given to sin or selfishness or fault. But Lord, that you are a perfect father. And so it is that we ask you to give us wisdom and Open our hearts to these promises. Amen. And in the verses before these, the Apostle Paul highlights the life of the Holy Spirit in us as an assurance of glory. He is the Spirit of life who liberates us from any and all condemnation. He is the Spirit of life who now dwells within us. He is the Spirit of life who empowers us to put to death sinful deeds. Now Paul presents as another assurance of glory the privileges of sonship. The privileges of sonship. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now to be led by the Spirit of God is another way of describing a believer. It's another way of describing what it means to be a Christian. It's, it's about our position. He's not talking about being led, that is, being guided by the Spirit in terms of making decisions. And sometimes we use the phrase this way, the Spirit is leading me to do this, or I feel led by the Lord to do this. But that's not what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 8. He means being led into the putting to death of the deeds of the body so that you will live. That's verse 13. It is being led through all of the toil and suffering and temptations of this life to the glories of the life to come. So it is another description equivalent to being in the Spirit, to living according to the Spirit, having the Spirit. It even is another phrase that describes the same thing as being in Christ Jesus. We are led by the Spirit. And if you are led by the Spirit, then you are sons of God. This is another one of those revelations, another one of those declarations from God that is worth more than anything you own or anything you could ever own. It is more precious than the earth itself and all that the human race has never known or achieved that you and I would be called sons of God. It is a title of relationship. 
of belonging. Those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God because we are sons to God. When you turned from sin, when you placed your faith in Christ alone, you were not only justified before the judge as a guilty rebel and now free from any and all condemnation ever, but you were made a son, one who is treasured by the Father, one who is brought into a family relationship with him. And now when Paul says sons, he means daughters also. These are believers, both men and women. Sons represent both here. But the title of son is also an important one because a son represented the father and the family in Paul's day. It was the son who would propagate the family name. It was the son who would inherit the family business or the family wealth. And it was the son who would take on the responsibility for providing for the family and even extended family. Our culture is different, of course, in terms of the relationship and the prominence of men and women. And it's not a matter of whether or not one is right and one is wrong. But to take Paul's terminology here, sons, in its context, the name of son conveys a meaning that other words can't, based on the meaning of sonship. We have the same issue, the same gap, when we come across the term firstborn in the New Testament. The firstborn is not just necessarily chronological, it has to do with prominence. So a son here, sonship, is talking about having this role. So ladies, sisters in Christ, you are sons in Romans chapter 8. You are included in sonship without any distinction made between male and female. You are sons. And what we find here are four privileges of sonship. Four privileges of sonship. The first we find in verse 15, acceptance. Acceptance. This is the first privilege of sonship. Again, this is a term that we have some cultural baggage with. This term is used often in our world, as a synonym for tolerance. If you accept, if you're an accepting person, it kind of means you don't condemn anybody, you don't call anything wrong, nobody's ideas, nobody's morality is bad or wrong in and of itself. We accept anybody. In that sense, to accept means to throw aside all discernment, all standards of right and wrong, And just say, everything is okay. But this acceptance in Romans 8.15 is true acceptance. When you came to Christ, you received the Holy Spirit. He is not a spirit of slavery. In other words, you didn't trade out sin as a master, death as a tyrant. Remember, that's what Paul has been explaining in chapters 6 and 7. That apart from Christ, we come under the tyranny of sin and death. 
We are ruled by its laws. It is our necessary and inevitable master. When you came to Christ, you did not trade out sin and death only to have them replaced by a Holy Spirit who enslaves you again under a new kind of fear. A renewed fear of condemnation and judgment because sin produces death in you through the law. That's chapter 7, verse 13. So what Paul is saying is you didn't just trade out one tyrant for another. You aren't still locked in this same system as a slave to fear and rejection. What Paul is really saying is that the judge doesn't justify you, release you from all condemnation, and then send you back out into the world to have another go at keeping the law and trying to, trying to somehow work and achieve and maintain your rights relationship or status with him, living again under its enslavement. When he justifies you, he adopts you. He adopts you into his own family. In fact, he can't do one without the other. Because the only way God justifies us is to unite us with whom? Christ. It's in Christ that we have died. It is in Christ that we have been raised to new life. Because Jesus was raised to new life. And if we're joined to him, then we must be joined in a relationship with him. How does that happen? Now that we are justified, that we are one with Christ, we are adopted. And it is the Holy Spirit who mediates this adoption process and bestows sonship on us. That is why he's called the spirit of adoption. Adoption was a well-known practice in the Roman world, which a child was made a member of a family. That child would receive all of the legal rights and privileges of any other child in the family. But Paul is actually renewing this beautiful image from the Old Testament, where the nation of Israel is often called God's son. God called out that nation from other nations to himself. He adopted them. In Romans chapter 9, verse 4, he's even going to apply adoption to the nation of Israel. Theirs is the adoption. It is now through the presence and work of the Holy Spirit that God makes a new people for himself. How did God adopt the people of Israel as a nation? How did he bring them into a relationship with himself? Through the law. That was the process of adoption. Mount Sinai, lightning, thunder, fear. If you go back and you read in the book of Exodus, when the people come to Mount Sinai and Moses goes up on the mountain, they are absolutely terrified down at the feet of the mountain. They even think Moses has been killed. It's fear. It began with fear. How does God now adopt all the nations into a relationship with himself? Through the Spirit. That is what Paul is talking about when he talks about a new age 
This is the new life. Those who have believed in Christ are no longer in Adam, chapter 5. We are now in Christ. And when the spirit of adoption bestows sonship on you, there are no caveats. There's no fine print. You are made a full member of God's family and you receive all of the full privileges of sonship. In fact, in proof of our adoption into full sonship, Paul says, we cry, Abba, Father. The word cry was, or cry out usually refers to an anguished cry. In fact, it's used throughout the Gospels to describe the way people who are possessed by demons cry out. They cry out with this kind of this anguished torment. So when we are in distress, when we are in need, we cry out like this to God, like children to their parents. This word Abba, and if you've studied your Bibles at all, you probably are familiar with this word. This is a a term of affection, and it could mean daddy. I kind of like the word Papa better. We kind of outgrow daddy. My kids don't call me daddy anymore. But they could still call me Papa or Dad. It's a familiar term. It's a name of respect, intimacy, tenderness. Papa, Father. The God who has saved us accepts us. He is a close and available Papa. And you still have to think of him as a capital P Papa but he is a papa, papa father. And this close and available father welcomes us. He hears our distress with compassion. He cares for our needs. It is the spirit who has changed this relationship from one of fear and dread to one of acceptance. Now, there's a right kind of fear that we're still to have. It's the fear of the Lord. We come across that phrase often in the Old Testament, and what that's talking about really is a worldview, a view in which we see all of life through the lens of God is on the throne, God is a judge of right and wrong, God will hold mankind accountable for how he conducts life. That's why wisdom and knowledge begin with the fear of the Lord. It is taking God and his sovereignty and his rule into account when you come to your studies, when you come to your work, when you come to your family relationships, business dealings, all of these things. That's the fear of the Lord. We find, especially in the book of Acts, the term God-fearers. Referring to the same thing. These were Gentiles who had not converted to the Jewish faith, but believed in the Jewish God and read the law, what we call the Old Testament, and lived accordingly. They were God-fearers, and they were expecting, as Israel was, a Messiah of some sort. That's why in the book of Acts, the apostles and the early church have a ministry to God-fearers, God-fearing Gentiles. 
So there is a right kind of fear. But the kind of fear that is no longer part of our lives is the fear of Romans 6 and especially Romans 7. Where we're always churning. We want to do what's right, but we can't do what's right. And we can never please God and it's never good enough. And we're never able to do what we think we can achieve in terms of our own morality. And we live in this, this cauldron of, of disappointment and, and just oppression before God. That kind of fear, that kind of dread, no longer. You've been adopted as sons, and you come with full access to an available papa. John the Apostle says the same thing in 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. There you go. There's the difference. Fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Listen, you are not loved partially. You are loved perfectly, completely. This is the access by faith into the grace in which we stand, chapter 5, verse 2. Now, if this is true... Why is it that we fail so often to go to Papa Father with that kind of openness and that kind of abandonment? Our confidence wavers, doesn't it? But you know what? The Holy Spirit has an answer for that also. And that's the second privilege of sonship here, verse 16, assurance, assurance. Of all the ministries of the Holy Spirit, this may be the most directly personal. The Spirit bears witness. That is, He gives testimony that we are the children of God. He bears witness to our true identity. He bears witness that we truly belong to God. He testifies that the privileges of sonship actually belong to us. When he says our spirit, he bears witness with our spirit. He's talking about our inner being, our inner person, as opposed to something external, visible. The question is, what does he mean by the word with? With our spirit. It could mean to our spirit. So if I, if I approach you after church and I say, hey, can I, can I speak with you for a couple minutes? And if I were to come to you and say, hey, can I speak to you for a couple minutes? You wouldn't hear any difference between those things. To speak with you is to speak to you. And it could be that Paul is emphasizing this. That this verse then would be saying that the Holy Spirit affirms to our spirit that we are sons. We are the ones who hear his witness, his testimony. He is assuring us that we belong. But there's also this meaning with our spirit to mean alongside of our spirit, meaning the spirit's witness accompanies our claim or cry. So we are bearing witness or making a claim, and the Holy Spirit is there alongside of us, also bearing witness, testifying to our claim. In this context, I, I think they both are happening. 
I think that's what Paul is communicating. When we cry, Abba, Father, the Holy Spirit testifies that we are legitimate sons who have the freedom and the right to cry out to God, our Papa, for help. Romans 8, verse 26 will say something similar, telling us that we do not know what we ought to pray But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He doesn't pray to us. The Spirit intercedes and prays alongside of us or intercedes in our stead to pray to the Father. Just as Jesus prayed to the Father on our behalf. So what is being pictured then, I think, is as we move toward the Father to seek his kindness and his help, the Spirit's testimony accompanies us, assuring us of our privilege to approach God with confidence and abandon. Maybe we could picture it like a a child who knows that Father has the answer, dad has the answer, but is too timid, and mom comes alongside and says, son, go go to your dad, go ask him, he loves you, he accepts you, you belong. In the same way, the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us as we cry out, Papa, Father, the Holy Spirit comes alongside of us and says, don't waver in doubt, don't Don't second guess. Don't hesitate. Father loves you. I dwell within you. You were righteous before him. But I've blown it. I've sinned. Yeah, but Jesus already paid the price. You already died in Christ. You've already been raised with him to a new life. Sin's not your master. You don't live under the law. You live under grace. Go to the Father. That is assurance. The Holy Spirit ministers to our spirits by assuring us, by testifying with us that we belong, that we are indeed true sons. Thirdly, we have the privilege of inheritance. We have the privilege of inheritance. The Holy Spirit confirms that we are legitimate children of God. Verse 17 works out the logical conclusion. And if children, then heirs. Then heirs. If we are children, then we must be heirs. Our position as heirs has our future in view. So just as An adopted child enjoys the immediate privileges of this new relationship, but also looks forward to an inheritance someday. So we, who are now adopted into God's family, enjoy the immediate privileges of sonship, but also have future blessings that are promised to us. Blessings that we must wait for blessings that we must wait for. And what is it that we inherit? When Paul talks about us as heirs, what are we inheriting? Glory. Glory is our inheritance. 
We are heirs of God. Our inheritance comes from him, and it is God who bestows glory. Glory belongs to him. It originates with him. It is who he is. He is glorious. And only he can bestow glory. Only he can leave or transfer glory to his children. And God will transfer glory to us. We are heirs of God. We are also fellow heirs with Christ. Christ receives glory from the Father. Philippians chapter 2. He has been raised or exalted to the right hand of God. And every knee will bow and every tongue proclaim that he is Lord. Christ receives glory and we will be glorified with him. That's what the next line says even. We will be glorified with him. Now, in some ways, Christ is already glorified. He's already been resurrected from the dead and is the firstborn from among the dead, meaning he's the first of this resurrection. Our resurrections from the dead will mirror his. He is the pioneer. He paved the way. He is the firstborn from among the dead. And so, he is already glorified. He is already reigning. Read Revelation chapter 1 sometime, where John encounters the risen, glorified Christ and describes him with feet of burning bronze and glorious, white, pure clothing and eyes of fire and a, a sword for a tongue, judgment. And he falls down on his face as though dead. That is the glorified Lord. And it is the only way you and I will ever see him. We'll never see the carpenter from Nazareth. When you see Jesus, it's the Jesus of Revelation chapter 1. That's the Jesus you will see. He is already glorified in one sense. But there is also a victory to be won. There is a coronation to come. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes that God the Father will give the kingdom to the Son. That is something that hasn't occurred yet, even though he is exalted to the right hand of God. God will deliver over all things under his feet, the kingdom. There's a coronation to come. There's a wedding feast to have that has not taken place yet. When Jesus is married to his bride, the church. And that's only after he takes us away. So Christ is glorified already in one sense, but in another there is more glory to come. Christ still has part of his inheritance as the, the son of God. We are fellow heirs with Christ. We also will receive glory. And the glory we inherit... Deliverance from judgment and destruction. The wrath of God. The final eradication of sin, where sin is completely done away with. Victory over death. Resurrection with new bodies that are fitted for immortality. 
eternal life, the presence of God forever, the entirety of the kingdom, a new heavens and a new earth. The promises are staggering. All that Christ receives, we receive with him, all because we have been adopted. And who makes that adoption a reality? The spirit of adoption. So we have the privileges of sonship. Fourthly, we have the privilege of participation. The privilege of participation. This is the second part of chapter 8, verse 17. In case we are attempted to the idea that we've arrived, that our privileges of sonship give us some elevated status, that we are somehow above this life, exempt from hardship, the end of verse 17 reminds us that we must suffer first. Suffering is part of it. Suffering is part of the privilege of sonship because you are participating with Christ himself. Because we are one with Christ, we are fellow heirs of glory. But because we are one with Christ, we must follow Jesus' own road to glory by suffering with him. We are joined to Christ in his death. We are joined to Christ in his resurrection. And we are joined to the life between the two. This is the true impact of the now but not yet. We are adopted as sons, yet there's a part of our adoption yet to happen. Paul will even say this later on in the chapter. In verse 23, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. There's part of the adoption process that's not fulfilled yet. And we enjoy all the privileges of sonship, but we have an inheritance, the finalization of our adoption when God brings us to glory. But before that time, in the now, as sons, true sons who cry out, Abba, Father, we are called to suffering. As one writer put it so well, participation in Christ's glory can come only through participation in his suffering. For the glory of the kingdom of God is attained only through participation in Christ, and belonging to Christ cannot but bring our participation in the sufferings of Christ. That's right. Suffering is part of the road. This participation is what Paul applies to himself in Colossians 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. What Paul is saying is that because I'm an apostle and I am given this stewardship for the church's sake, I suffer. And he sees these as 
Christ's afflictions which are lacking, which doesn't mean that Christ's suffering was deficient, but that he must follow in the same road. He must follow the same path that Jesus suffered as the chief shepherd, as an apostle. He must also follow that same path to fulfill his calling to serve the churches, Jesus' churches. So whenever someone claims God only blesses his people, Faith leads to prosperity. True faith, being a child of God, means that you will gain wealth, that you will only know blessing. That it is not God's will that you ever suffer, but only that you succeed. A right response would be, well, you don't belong to Christ then. You don't even belong to him. And for all of your claims and all of your naming things church, you are not sons. You are not truly adopted. You do not have the spirit of adoption. You have no inheritance. You cannot know glory. That would be a right response. Suffering the anxieties the tensions, the rejections, and the losses that come with belonging to the crucified Christ is a privilege of sonship. It is a privilege of sonship. Christians are not, of course, the only ones to suffer in life. We are the only ones to suffer with reason, though. For purpose. This was the view of the early church, wasn't it? Acts chapter 5. The Jewish rulers had called in the apostles, had arrested them. They had already told them not to preach in Jesus' name, but they had done it anyway. And Peter answers the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, and basically rebukes them. And in verse 40, it says that they they send the apostles out. They hold a little council. They decide to let them go, not try to make martyrs or heroes out of them because they're very popular with the people. And when they had called in, this is verse 40 of Acts chapter 5, and when they had called in the apostles, calling them back in, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They were beaten and then released and said, Amen. What joy! Jesus was crucified. If we, can, if we can emulate his suffering in any way for his name's sake, we will rejoice in that because it is proof that we are worthy, that we are true sons, that we are truly the people of God. You know, I don't know when the end is. I would never make a claim to know. I don't know how much longer we have in this life. 
in this world, in this age in between, between when we have been adopted as sons and yet are awaiting our final adoption, the redemption of our bodies. I don't know how long that is. But I do know this, it's closer now than it was when the apostles were preaching in Acts chapter 5. It's closer, isn't it? The question is, can we do any less? Should our joy and satisfaction be any less in saying, yeah, we're suffering. Yeah, we face tension and we face rejection, loss in this life. But we count it a privilege because we are true sons. We have been adopted. And we deserved nothing better. And we have all of the privileges of sonship. What do we do with a world then that is groaning in pain and anxiety? Well, that's for next time, right? That's the verses that follow. But for us... We live as sons, full and complete members of God's family. Father, we rejoice this morning in the work that you have done. Holy Spirit, the, the ministry that you have to us, your presence in our lives. Our thinking is so small sometimes. Sometimes we are we are enslaved to our own feelings of separation from you, of loneliness, of despair. And yet your promises are very clear, very real. Lord, help us in our lack of faith at times, our lack of confidence. Holy Spirit, move us. Bear witness with our spirits as we move to the Father, and cry out in our distress. Help us to rejoice in these privileges as true sons. We are no longer enslaved to fear, enslaved to terror and depression. But Spirit, you have, you have brought us through adoption into the family of God. Amen.